Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. David Inside Sports is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Enjoy the show. I sit and watch that, the last dance, the Jordan saga, and that's what it is, it's the Jordan saga, because Michael is the star of that documentary like he was the star of the team. And people take issue with Michael because he was politically correct. He didn't get involved in discussions. He didn't get to, to talk about He didn't get to talk about I don't know political issues. He would have no opinion on the current administration. LeBron James does. And that's the difference between the two. And you're entitled to your opinion. I would only say this. If you're a superstar athlete And Michael said it quite clear. He doesn't consider himself a role model. And that's okay. That's his choice. Where is it said that when you are a superstar athlete, you become a role model? Where does it say that if you're in broadcasting, you can just run your mouth and just say stuff just for reaction? But yet we have people in in our business that do that. I can name names, but what for what? Because a lot of them that talk big and just talk loud and scream and carry on, just do it for effect. And in some cases, it's translated into a big contract. But to me, loud is just loud. It doesn't mean you're right or wrong. So if Michael Jordan went through his career and if, if you're Michael Jordan and you have a license to say whatever you want, and you choose not to, does that mean you're afraid? Michael Jordan? No, he's not afraid. He doesn't want to get embroiled in that conversation. That's not what he wants to do. It's okay. He can do whatever he wants. Whether it's Michael Jordan or Joe Blow down the street, do whatever you want. Michael Jordan made a mark on the sports landscape of this country in a positive way. Now, you've got the idea that Michael had a gambling situation. He claimed it wasn't a problem. He said he had a competitive problem. Did he gamble? Yeah, it's been duly noted. And they took issue with him before, you know, during the Knicks series when he went down to Atlantic City with some guys and was seen gambling at 1, 2 in the morning. Whether it's fact or fiction, I don't know. And then he came back sluggish for game two of that series against the Knicks. Did they win the series? Yes. Did they ever lose to the Knicks in a series? No. So if you're looking for something to poke about an athlete, knock yourself out. I would only say this. Michael Jordan doesn't have to be the guy who makes you at ease. He doesn't have to be the guy that is not politically correct. He can be whatever he wants. And it's not because of the amount of money he makes. It's just that he's earned that right. And when I hear, I heard a guy this morning, a well-known guy, on television, criticizing Michael Jordan. And I'm saying, what have you done? You got a platform that gives you a license to jab holes in a guy who achieved a ton of things in his career? So, I'm a big fan of Michael Jordan's. I'm a big fan of LeBron James. I'm a big fan of guys that have talent and maximize that use of talent. 
That's what I'm a big fan of that. I watched that documentary. And we're going to have Sam Smith, who was the guy that he's the author of Jordan Rules. And he came under a lot of scrutiny for what happened during that, that time. And Sam, by his own admission, Sam Smith, by his own admission, says that he received threats. That's just great. That's just great. People receiving threats from who? Mindless idiots that decides to raise their voice because something believes in something that you don't. You know, it's 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 lack of another explanation pisses me off. Plain and simple. I watched that documentary for what it was meant to be entertaining during this pandemic to where we don't have live sports. So maybe we live vicariously through the success of the Chicago Bulls. What did you hear from Charles Barkley? His praise for Michael Jordan. Yeah, they're friends. And he readily admits Michael Jordan was better than he was. Michael Jordan was better than everybody during that time. Magic Johnson, forever a superstar. Larry Bird, forever a superstar. Michael Jordan, forever a superstar. And so people like to, when you're sitting on top, they like to take shots. And then when, I, when people that take shots at those up top, they're cowards. Because you, you don't have the nerve to look at them right in the eye, standing 10 feet away from them, and, and, and show your, your, your criticism and display your criticism. But yet you can talk behind their back. Michael Jordan was great. Michael Jordan was the standard bearer of greatness in his sport. I don't know of another sport, because primarily because it's, it's, it's an individual sport. It's a team sport, but there's a lot of individuality that goes with it. And so when I look at a player like Michael Jordan, he's one of five on the court. But he's the most visible one of that five. Where else could them? When Magic Johnson played, Magic Johnson was part of, it was him and Kareem and Worthy and Scott and all the rest of them. So it was the Lakers. It was Pat Riley's Lakers. It was Phil Jackson's Lakers with Shaq and Kobe. But Kobe Bryant said it. If it wasn't for Michael Jordan, he didn't know if anybody would even know who Kobe is. We knew who Kobe was, and we're constantly reminded of it now since the tragedy. And it's just one of those things where, I don't know, I get very, uh, very annoyed at people that don't get their due. And Bob Rathman made a very good observation that Dale Murphy has never been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Definitely should have been. Definitely should be at some point. Kel Hodges of the Dodgers should be in the Hall of Fame. And we can argue the Pete Rose thing until the cows come home. It's enough. It's 30 years. The guy's been in prison for 30 years. Yeah, he broke a rule of baseball. But he didn't throw games. He bet on his own team. I'm not endorsing it. I'm not saying it was right. It was wrong. And had he come clean right away with Bart Giamatti, then the commissioner of baseball, he'd be in the Hall of Fame today. Book it. Sam Smith still works for the Chicago Bulls. He's with Bulls.com. He was with the Chicago Tribune for a very long time. He's going to join me in just a little bit. We're going to talk Bulls basketball. We're going to talk what made the Chicago Bulls so interesting to everybody who was a part of that group. So let me dial up Sam. And we will talk to him. Here we go. We're ready to bring on Sam Smith.
Hey, Sam, it's Howard David. Yeah, Howard. How are you? Good. You're a big star now after what I saw last night. <laughs> you know what? I, like I told someone, I've been in the same spot for 30 years, and it's the circus came back to me. <laughs> That's an interesting, interesting way to put it. But it, so, it is so, true. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not the moving target. They are. I, I, I was interested in a couple of things um, from the, uh, do the documentary that I've seen so far, the three weeks that I've watched it. But last night was obviously very intriguing. Uh, when you were with the Chicago Tribune, you started there, actually started as a political writer, right? Yes, yeah. I, I came to the Tribune in 79, and um, uh, you know, one of the things I did in 80 was the presidential campaign. I, I was on the John Anderson, who was an independent candidate. He was a, one of our local congressmen from Illinois. So I had traveled with him in the 80 campaign and you know, then did a hybrid of uh, local and national. Uh, actually, the Tribune's national staff was at a local office, you know, out of Chicago. Usually it's out of Washington. So uh, I was part of that. Um, and then switched into sports, actually, just a couple of years after that. Just really serendipity. Newspapers like to switch people around. You know, hey, try this, try that. <laughs> so I ended up... Actually, what I had done was... Uh, we had this great program where you went and, and worked, uh, wrote features for the Sunday magazine for like a six or nine month uh, sort of sabbatical. And uh, so I did that, like around 82, I think it was. And then uh, actually one of the features I did was on the CBA where I got to know Phil Jackson because I was in Albany when he was coaching the Patroons. And uh, spent a weekend with him and Charlie Rosen there. And um, so then when it, not long after that, uh, I had switched into sports full-time. Uh, you've been covering the Bulls since, I think, 87. Uh, and along the way, the Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Hall of Fame, which is a tremendous honor, and, and all the things you've done. And, of course, the author of Jordan Rules. Uh, now, the Detroit Pistons had a different set of Jordan Rules uh, and, and discussed that when I was with the Nets uh, Chuck Daly was there the last two years I was there and learned a lot of, uh, from Chuck about a lot of things that I thought were, were part of the NBA. Chuck gave me the real scoop on the, the mentality of the NBA player. And not the least of which was in 92 when he coached the Dream Team, Jordan and Magic and, and Larry Bird, etc. cetera. Uh, Chuck Daly was not just rolling the ball out. He had to deal with 12 huge egos. Yeah, Chuck was great. I really miss Chuck. It was great fun to be around. Um, uh, spent a lot of time with Chuck over the years, especially you know with that with the Bulls rivalry was you know to me the Bulls Pistons rivalry was the greatest the greatest rivalry in the league's history. It wasn't the most famous, of course. You know Boston and L.A. You know back in the '60s with you know Russell and eventually Chamberlain, even is in L.A. But you know some of the great rivalries, but. And as we've seen in, in this uh, documentary, the, the intensity, uh, you know, of, the, of those last those five years and uh, the era, you know, how physical the play was and how angry, you, you know, the players were toward one another to the point of, you know, Bird and Magic, you know, became friends and, you know, did a play together or whatever, you know. You can see there's no friendship between anyone from the, you know, among those Pistons and Bulls, maybe Joe Dumars. You know, but certainly not Isaiah, certainly not Lambeer. Uh, of course, Rodman came to the Bulls, but, you know, some of those bitter feelings. And, and I think that's actually one of the great things uh, about the documentary showing is the really great coaches. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great players, and, and it, it's much uh, overlooked, uh, the, the job of a coach uh, or, or the work of a coach when he has great players. You know, Pat Riley, uh, the first time he won Coach of the Year was, I think, his last year with the Lakers because he had, you know, Magic and Worthy, and the notion was, well, they're winning. It's got nothing to do with the coaching. And I think that's what you're seeing with Phil Jackson and how uh, he had to balance all these incredible personalities. You know, Michael, the most manic of anybody who's ever played, probably, and Dennis, 
the most bizarre, you know, Scottie Pippen withdrawn and sensitive. And so many of these incredible talents with uh, you know, unusual figures. And, you know, I think, and that, and that was a, a strength of Phil that gets overlooked. And much like Chuck, too. You know, what happens when, it, when, when they, they get players like that and they get the, what gets overlooked is their basketball knowledge, X's and O's. These guys were great X's and O's guys. You know, Phil was basically the assistant coach on the 70 Nick championship team. You know, he was such a bright basketball guy. He had had back surgery that year and couldn't play. Um, and Red Holtzman wanted him to sit on the bench as an assistant, basically. In fact, they didn't have any assistants. Um, you know, because his basketball knowledge was so great. And the same with Chuck, you know, between you know, coaching all these great, you know, managing all these egos with the Pistons teams that he had and, um, you know, the way he dressed, you know, uh, Chuck was always, you know, probably the best dressed of the coaches and, you know, very so, so you know, quite forward, quite well coiffed, uh, more than any, you know, worked on his hair for hours for sure. Uh, but he was, uh, you know, that, you know, coaching Penn and, and uh, you know, starting with some bad Cavs teams, you know, he was a, uh, down in the down in the dirt drawn place kind of guy as well as any, but you know that's the greatness of, of some of these guys that you, you overlook how good their basketball expertise is because they you know they're basically working as psychologists or sociologists to manage to keep the, you know these great groups of uh, individual performers moving forward. And being around Chuck Daly, and I got the pleasure of going to his house in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And he took me in to, uh, and showed me his closet. Sam, the guy had 300 suits and sport jackets. <laughs> I said, are you, I said, Chuck, you're kidding me, right? He goes, take a look at the makeup. And I looked around and I said, a lot of blue suits, a lot of blue sport jackets. Why is that? He says, because you could accessorize blue better than any other color. <laughs> and that was his That's reason. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, like I said, Chuck, Chuck was always dressed for every outing. He was a great gentleman to be around, great fun to be around all the time. Um, the thing that you, that you see quite clearly in the documentary is when the Bulls finally had the answer to the Pistons after losing to them twice, and they beat them, and the Piston players just walking right by the Bulls and didn't shake hands, and Isaiah looked like he was trying to sneak out the door. Uh, I mean, people will associate that with... One of the reasons why Michael Jordan did not want him on the Dream Team is that fact or fiction? Uh, well, you know, I mean, you know, we've, had, we've had so many versions of this, and, and you know, the latest in the documentary was Michael uh, saying, you know, I had nothing to do with it, and I didn't make the point. Now, I do remember him telling me, you know, a year before that, when they were lot, they were trying to get him on. See, what it goes back to was. He didn't, he didn't want to go play, be on the Dream Team in 92. He was so worn out from those two championships, 91 and in 92, and now the gambling things, uh, issues are developing. You know, there was a controversy with my book, The Jordan Rules. And, you know, so now he's just getting worn out, basically. He's had no time off it's, it, through these two, um, you know, tracks to championships and and so he said publicly he said i'm not i'm not interested you know 84 and he did it you know professionally he said you know i played in 84 i won a gold medal which is great one of the highlights of my life you know but it's time to give someone else a chance and so um now now the committee is panicked you can't have the greatest team you know and it wasn't a great team really you know i mean You'd have half a dozen NBA teams would have beaten that team um, because, you know, Bird was basically retired. Magic hadn't played in the year because he had HIV. Uh, you know, it, it, it was the most famous players. And, that, and, that, and that's why, you know, Isaiah's uh, omission was, was, you know, such a catastrophic uh, unfair, you know, unfair element because it was just a fashion show at the NBA. It wasn't putting together your best players. You know, there were great players on there, but, you know, Chris Mullen, for, it was, was he on it? Chris Mullen, I think, was on it. Yes. Uh, you know, he wasn't a top 10 player of the year. Chris was great, you know, but, I mean, Golden State never got out of the first round of the playoffs. <laughs> and, uh, and the other part, too, was there were, there were issues on the team. 
he, he personally, you know, Carl Malone had come out publicly and said he didn't want to play with Magic because HIV, he was afraid of getting AIDS. You know, Magic and Carl were, <laughs> were by, by no means close. But what the committee had done, they realized is now we got to get Michael. And, and we can't have this team without Michael. So they're trying to figure out. So they, it, it was, to me, anticipatory that they said, you know, it, it, this was sort of in their back pocket to go into Michael. Well, you know, we'll keep Isaiah off if you'll play. And, and I think Michael would have played with Isaiah. He'd play with anybody. That was the other thing. Michael, you know, Michael wasn't close with a lot of guys. You know, he could have still enjoyed the same experience. I guarantee you Michael didn't spend 10 seconds on that on that dream team thing with John Stockton and certainly not Christian Leitner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I think, I think what the committee did is, look, they, they're just crossing, you know, dotting their I's, crossing their T's. How do we get Michael? How do we make sure he doesn't say no? And, and Isaiah, with, you know, with the rivalry and the walk-off and all that stuff, that was another reason Michael might have said no. So I, I think that I think that's, that's why the committee didn't include uh, Isaiah on the roster. But I, I believe Michael would have played with him because Michael was like, you know, whatever, just bring him along. You know, I'm the star, I'm the star of the team. I'm going to dominate. And, you know, he, he, he said himself, you know, he basically hung out with Magic and, and Bar- as I remember that dream team, you know, Barkley was out every night in, in Barcelona till like five in the morning, you know, and with Michael, you know, Michael's playing cards with, you know, Magic and, and uh, I think Patrick maybe, um, you know, but Barkley was like a Pied Piper out in the community with everybody, you know, he was always the people's favorite, and, and he, you know, Barkley, of all the, of all the players, all the great players, Barkley was always the most, you know, human one in the sense of he hung around with the fans at the bars. You know, the players had bodyguards and all that stuff. Charles was like, you know, whatever. I'm, that's why he got into all those fights over the years <laughs> because nobody, nobody else would hang out and argue with guys in a bar <laughs> except Barkley. Yeah. So uh, you know, so I, uh, there's a lot of stuff to it. Yes, they, they didn't, Michael, they didn't care for each other. They had a great rivalry. You know, it was, it was very bitter. Uh, Michael, I believe, would have, if they put him on the team, and Michael then had committed to it, which I believe eventually would have, because Nike would have said, hey, you know, we, you can't go to the Olympics without Michael Jordan. I, I think they would have pushed him over the edge anyway. Sam Smith, the author of New York Times bestseller, Jordan Rules. What was the impetus of the book, Sam? because um, I started it really innocently and, and, and it's hard for people to believe, you know, remembering back then or watching the, the uh, uh, documentary, but the general belief around the NBA was the Bulls were not going to win, never. <laughs> you know, that the narrative was that you can't win with Jordan because he's, you know, he's too selfish and scores and shoots all the time and scores. And back then, you know, the two elements of success were you had as a great center, uh, you know, it was a, still an era of great centers. Uh, Akeem, yeah, Akeem, Kareem, Patrick, uh, Moses Malone, uh, even Cleveland with Doherty. Um, so the Bulls didn't have that. And the other thing is he couldn't lead the league in scoring. Even Phil Jackson, when he came to the Bulls as an assistant on Doug Collins' staff, told Michael, he said, well, you know, uh, in the, in the last, like, 25 years in the NBA, there's only, only one player who's won a championship and led the league in scoring the same year, and that's Kareem with the Bucks in 71. That's, you can't win that way. And the notion was, you know, you had to play like Bird or Magic, you know, have all your teammates and all. So, you know, uh, nobody's really thinking the thing is they hate them. They're good because of Jordan, you know, but been a lot of good teams with a great player that didn't, you know, didn't win titles. And, and that, that's that's who, who he was. And so, you know, I was traveling with the team several years and the regular beat writer for the Chicago Tribune and had a lot of time on my hands being on the road and not being a drinker, partier kind of person. So, you, you, you know, I thought, well, I, you know, I, I, I know I've meeting a lot of people now who wrote books and they don't seem very smart. <laughs> says, well, you know, I, maybe I'll give that a try. And, and I was always influenced, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite authors ever, 
David Halberstam and all these uh, books on America, you know, the Vietnam War and American history, Korean right. War that he wrote. And, um, you know, probably to, to me the best, you know, nonfiction author of the 20th century. And he'd, he'd written this, he was a great sports fan and, and wrote this book uh, called The Breaks of the Game on the, kind of a, a, a diary of a season with a basketball team. And it was at the Portland Trailblazers in the late 70s. Yeah, but it was not well known because uh, Bill Walton had gotten hurt and the team wasn't very good. Uh, but it was sort of great character study uh, of all these individuals of the team and you know what it's like behind the scenes. And, and it's like what every sports season is. You know, you've been traveling with teams, you've been around teams, and you know, you know, whether the team wins or loses, it's still a story. You know, of the individuals and the people and what they've gone through. And so I just thought, you know, I'd do something like that, and uh, you know, for sort of for a, you know for fun, a little hobby, and you know, I'd have a book. You know, 25 years later, I'd look back and say, hey, see, I wrote a book too. And um, it turns out, I, you know, I was doing it for the 90-91 season, a season which the Bulls, you know, had beat had been beaten by Detroit three straight years in the playoffs, and you know, Pippen famously had that migraine headache, and. And, and the notion was, you know, he was mentally weak, and and, and, and Jordan, you know, felt that way too. And that, that not only him, Horace Grant, you know, they couldn't stand up to this physical play, and, and they just couldn't beat the Pistons. And so I remember early that season, ninety ninety one, uh, we went into Detroit. It was right before Christmas, and the Bulls just got obliterated by the Pistons in Auburn Hills. They had never yet won a game in Auburn Hills, and they got blown out. Uh, lost by 20-something, and you know, I remember after the game, Phil was talking to the media and said, you know, this team just may not be up to it, you know, and, and we may have to change the team, and, you know, Michael is lobbying for trading Pippen and Grant. He wants Buck Williams and uh, Walter Davis, ACC guys, veterans, tougher guys, and so there was, you know, turmoil around the team that year. Then they come out of the All-Star break and get on this incredible run, just blow through the East the rest of the second half of the season and right into the playoffs and just blow out the Lakers, who are much favored. Nobody was picking the Bulls. It's Magic and, you know, the veteran Lakers and, and Worthy and Sam Perkins, and, you know, they'll just run over these kids. And the Bulls just blew them out. And, and you know, so all of a sudden, you know, this innocent little diary of us behind the season with, you know, behind the scenes with just another team turns out not only to be a champion, but, and, and this was such when the book come out, I mean, literally about, about the same time, uh, so the book is about being released in November of 91, and the Bulls are scheduled then to go to the White House to, to do the president, and that stupid, you know, champion goes to the White House thing. And so Jordan says he's not going, so he's got a family vacation planned. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, you know, that's understandable, you know, because the Bulls had made this last-minute thing. They hadn't had it, they didn't have it set until right before the season started. And so then it turns out, well, he didn't go on a family vacation. He lied about that. He went on a gambling, a legal gambling weekend with a, with a bunch of questionable characters, one of whom was a convicted drug dealer, unbeknownst to Michael, as he and he said in, in the documentary about some other of the characters he was with. Was, and, was that the uh, golf shark? Was that the, go, the, the golf the golf hustler? No, 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 no. This was uh, this was Slim Bowler. Okay. This was the golf hustler was a minor character really. That was in '93, '92, '93. This was this was fall in '91. So he skips the trip. To, just imagine in this era, this goes on. He skips the trip to the White House. So the whole team goes to the White House without Michael Jordan. And Michael says, yeah, you know, it was Bush 1 was president. And he said, well, yeah, I met him when he was vice president. No big deal. <laughs> so he doesn't go. And the rest of the team goes. Uh, he says he was on a family vacation. He wasn't on a family vacation. It turns out he was in an illegal gambling game in South Carolina with a convicted drug dealer. And the way it got found out was there was a bail bondsman there who was financing the game, oh. and he got murdered. Oh. And when they were going through his stuff, they found a $50,000 or whatever it was check from Jordan. Oh. <laughs> he, had, he, had a, he had a check Jordan had written to him, a personal check. So now this comes out, oh. you know, on top of, you know, my, the Jordan rules just come out about, you know, behind the scenes, what's going on. He beat up Will Purdue. 
you know, he made fun of the players, you know, told everybody, don't pass the cart right at the end of the game, or I won't pass it to you. <laughs> you know, so so all of a sudden, he's just swamped with this stuff. But, you know, the gambling stuff, that's where the gambling stuff started. And, and like he said, and, and I agree with him, he, first of all, he didn't, maybe should have checked it out. But look, if, you, if, you, if you're going on a, on a big gambling thing, and it's, you know, everyone's putting in 100000 to get in the pot or something, there ain't going to be a lot of school teachers in the game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is who's playing in those games. And, and like Michael said, he liked gambling. It's not illegal. And, you know, really, you know, wasn't whatever. You know, everybody does it. You, you know, if you won the NCAA pool, I doubt you put it on your taxes. You know, so, you know, that's the way it works in them. And now, you know, the hypocrisy of it all, all the, all the leagues are in partnerships with these casinos or gambling operations. So, you know, all this Pete Rose, oh, he's, you know that he's disgraced baseball because he gambled. Yeah, well, so you know now now you're now you're in it because you can make money on it. So hey, Sam, yeah, let, let me know. interrupt you just for a second. Um, so the book comes out, and the initial reaction from the Bulls organization as an organization was what? Uh, nothing. What about the, the players? Are, you know, Bulls, the Bulls didn't have much reaction of any. You know, it's you know they were like. You know, it wasn't about that. You know, well, I mean, it it, it it didn't say anything. You know, that was horrible. You know, it it just told about the interpersonal relationships. Uh, you know, among the players. And in fact, you, you, people, if you read that book, it, it's not you know leaked sources. It, it's not anonymous sources. People are on the record saying whatever hmm. they say. You know, I I had worked in, like I said, in, in D.C. I've been an investigative reporter in Indiana before I went to Washington. I did investigative work in Washington as well as covered Congress. And so I've done a lot of reporting and a lot of serious reporting, or what's considered serious, whatever. And so, you know, I was just chronicling, you know, what it was like to be around a sports team. And, you know, it, it, the controversy that erupted over it, and it, it, was, it was substantial, was about, you know, this is all made up. Michael Jordan can't be like this. He, he's, he's a wonderful guy. He smiles all the time, and everybody loves him. You know, be like Mike. There's a song, and he's in the commercials. And I said, no, no, he's a nice guy. I like him a lot. You know, he's fun to be around and all. But he can really be, you know, miserable guy to his teammates. And, you know, part of it is that's what, you know, that one is his, this incredible competitive nature of his, you know, which is manic. And which you know existed then as well as we see it now because we see it in the you know in the documentary but that existed then and it's tough to live with in some respects and it's tough to be his teammate what, what was his what was Michael's reaction to the book Michael's reaction was nothing to me he dealt with it really professionally um, he never said that he's never said a word to me about it ever um, and my personal belief, I wouldn't know that, is he's never read it. Um, you know, because it's it's a balanced story about him. There's a lot of positive, you know, there's a lot of positive because I, I did I liked him. You know, you know what what any book that uh, you know gets promoted, they they pull out you know the controversial you know five or six things. You know, so they he, you know he punched Will beat up Will Purdue in a practice. You know, or he called this guy a name or whatever. You know, so that's six things. And, you know, maybe it's 200 pages of other stuff. So, you know, it, 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 it was like David Halberstam's, you know, his profiles of everybody. Uh, you know, wrote out Pippin's life. You know, they talked about in the documentary. And, um, you know, some other players. There was a player whose parents were involved in a murder-suicide. And uh, Horace Grant, you know, was, was going to be a Marine, you know, before, you know, about his life. You know, and... And, you know, so it was an exploration of all these figures as well. D.J. Armstrong, who literally would go to a library to get books on genius to see how, you know, to try to learn how to better to play with Jordan. And so, you know, all these interesting characters who are, you know, were interesting on other teams, but, you know, it doesn't make it a story unless you got Michael Jordan as a, as a protagonist centerpiece. And, um, but because of the, and the controversy that erupted, in part, you know, some of it was, you know, this great, you know, figure Jordan. You know, we never heard any of this. I remember, you know, you know what's his name, 
uh, Roy Williams, who, who, who's now at North Carolina, but was the coach of Kansas then when, they went on t- I saw him on TV saying it was all a lie, it was all made up, you know, I know Michael and all this other sort of stuff. And so it was a lot of that. You, you know, Michael's defenders were saying, oh, it's a, he's this perfect guy, you know, like they said about in the commercials. And he, he, he is a good guy, but he, he, you know, he's got this crazy competitive gene that drives him. And, you know, the narrative became, which it evolved to, which it has to this day, is that, you know, leadership is not about making friends. Leadership is about driving people, you know, to a goal, to, you know, to greatness, to achieve something that perhaps they couldn't have on their own if you hadn't helped drive them to it. And, and that's what Michael did with, with the team. You know, you didn't necessarily have winning people, you know, and, and you know, no, none of them had won winners before, champions in college. You know, Pippen was a small college player. You know, Grant was at Clemson. Um, you know, Cartwright was now coming off the bench in New York behind Ewing. And so, you know, it was, uh, you know, Paxson was in his brother's shadow. You know, Jim Paxson was always a much better player than John. So, um, you know, here's this sort of ragtag group that Michael is, you know, dragging to, you know, greatness. And so, but, but you know, one, one thing he didn't do, which I always respected him for, was he didn't act like a you, you know, a spoiled child like a Russell Westbrook, you know, next question, or Rasheed Wallace, you know, staring down reporters, or, you know, some of the, you know, you know childish, you know, pure out behavior, a lot of players, you've seen Kevin Garnett, I mean, uh, Kevin Durant, you know, pouting about something is written or something. Uh, I, I was still around, I was covering the team, covering the NBA, and I was not going anywhere, and um, he knew that, I said that. And so when I was there asking questions, I would go to all the press conferences and media sessions, and I'd ask him questions, and he would answer me just like he would anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, several times he would say, oh, yes, Sam, uh, you know, this or that. And so he, he was always, you know, he understood, he, he, you know, whatever, however difficult Michael could be sometimes with teammates, he always understood and respected your job. And he always, you know, and he, he always gave you respect for the job you did. And um, so, you know, what was over was I didn't, you know, I had a good relationship with him and used to joke and, uh, you know, on the side and chat with him about stuff. And I just stopped that, you know, because it would have been inappropriate. I, you know, uh, I, I understood it was uncomfortable for him and it, it was not my place to sort of pretend I was, you, you, you know, was going to be, you know, buddy up to him. But it would be a formal, you know, business relationship, and that's what it's been, it was, and, and continued to be, and and is to this. I mean, I don't interview him anymore. Nobody does, on, on, you know, for a big ten-part documentary. But I've seen him in Charlotte a few times when, you know, when I was there with the Bulls, and you know, he'd chat a little bit, joke with me about, uh, you know, working for the Bulls now, and so. You know, it's been fine, but he never once ever said a word to me uh, about the book. I know, I'm sure he said it to others and mentioned in the show, but, um, you know, I, I, I think now he's comfortable with, you know, not only, he's always been comfortable with who he is, and I, I think now he's, you know, very comfortable with whatever happened, and, you know, positive or negative, whether it's, you know, social activism or whatever, you know, he's comfortable with who he is. You ne- you did receive threats though, true? Oh yeah, yeah. No, the community was outraged. The world was outraged. Uh, the, the local TV, yeah, and a lot. Of, and, and some of it, I can say a lot of it. Some of it was to try to ingratiate yourself with Michael. Well, yeah, hey, you criticize this guy. You know who they, everyone assumes Michael's mad at. You know maybe he'll give me an interview. <laughs> and so there was a lot of local, you know, a lot of local criticism and the media. Um, the I worked for the Chicago Tribune then, which was the major, you know, media voice in Chicago, and so some of the other, you know, smaller papers were, were writing regularly that the Bulls, you know, were going to be a one-hit wonder like the '85 Bears. You know, they'll never win again because of this book. And so the message to the community was, you know, this wonderful team that finally won. This guy and the Chicago Tribune, they've destroyed it, and they'll never win again. Because of this, you know, because, you know, see, they've exposed these internal divisions and now the players will never get past that. And this thing's going to come apart. And if you want to blame someone 
that's who to blame. <laughs> and so, yeah, so the community was outraged. Did the, did the newspaper, excuse me for interrupting, did the newspaper take you off the beat for a period of time? Well, what they, what they did and with what I asked at the time was, I said it would be better if, because I, I, I still was going to work and I wanted to work. I said, uh, why don't I become the NBA writer? We didn't have one. And so I said, you know, obviously the major story is the Bulls, and I'll be around the Bulls, but also, we, you know, now that the Bulls have gotten it big, it justified, you know, Boston Globe and uh, New York Post and New York, a lot, you know, most, a lot of big city papers, LA Times had NBA writers. So I said, let me be the NBA writer and just have somebody as a beat writer starting in 92 could travel with the team and you, you, I, I, now I just uh, had a, my first child. My, my son was like two or something then. So I said, I, I'd just as soon get off the road anyway. So, um, but initially when the book came out, um, because there was so much attention and threats and things like that, they had told me, they said, why, why don't you just spend a week, you know, go home, mm -hmm. don't answer the phone. And so I didn't because I was getting so many it was pre-sports talk. You know, there was one. There wasn't any 24-hour sports talk, uh, except the, the fan in New York was the only one at the time. And uh, but but you know, all these radio stations and TV stations, you know, it's sports reports and sports shows and stuff. So, you know, I was getting you know so much you know tension and calls, and so I stopped. And uh, as I recall, like a I think it was AP, API, whatever. Uh, put out a, a short wire story said that author was missing because <laughs> I wasn't answering the phone. I wasn't at work. Nobody had talked to me. No one had seen me. And and so um, I think my mother had sent me the article and said, where are you? Mm. You know, uh, she lived in the New York then. And so so it, it, it was an intense time. Now, like I said, I stuff on my family because I, um, I had worked investigative projects before and you know, where, where people had gone to court. I had actually been assaulted by a city official one time. I went to court huh. years before in, uh, in, uh, when I worked in Indiana. And so I had been involved in, in some of these kinds of things before. Um, so, you know, I, I was writing with it. It's not, it's not pleasant when you have to go through that, but it, it happens with people in media at times. It doesn't happen often in sports, <laughs> but it happens. And so uh, it, it was a really uncomfortable period. But at the same time, I was confident in what I did. I knew I treated everyone fairly. I knew what I did wasn't inaccurate. And uh, it wasn't, you know, it, it shouldn't have been as controversial as it was. And I think if you read the Jordan rules now, you'd look at it and say, well, why was so everybody so upset? <laughs> you know, it's, this is this is part of the dynamic of teams and and how you win and, and this is what greatness is about. And but and oh, by the way, you sold some books. Like that. And you sold books. Yes, it, <laughs> it sold a lot of books and it, it did fine. But you know what? I, it, 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 I'm still doing the same thing, and it's and it's great. You know, it gave it gave my you know my family some uh, financial security, but I'm still doing the same job. You know, I do it now. Uh, I write for the Bulls website. I'm not technically a Bulls employee. They buy my book, but work on an annual contract. But I'm able to cover the NBA and cover the team at a time where it's difficult to do because there's not much journalism um, opportunities like there used to be with newspapers. And so, you know, I, 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 I didn't do it to make money because, first of all, it was not when I proposed the project, the Bulls. As I said, you know, we're not uh, a favorite team, and there was very little interest in the book. I've got, I've got a dozen rejection letters from New York, virtually every New York publisher saying, you know, so what? This guy scores a lot of points. What have they ever won? And who are you? You know, what have you ever done? <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of interest in it. And, you know, I, I had a, a modest advance to do it, you know, um, and, and that's what I always thought it would be. And so, yeah, look, I, it was a lot of luck because it was great timing. And you know more than anything, if you, it, it's more important to be at the right place at the right time 
than it is to sort of draw up a career plan to try to get there. All right, and let me let me. You know, it exceeds planning an awful lot of the time. Yeah, let, let's talk about Jerry Krause. Uh, <clears throat> you get the idea watching the documentary that Scottie Pippen did not have Jerry Krause over for cocktails anytime. Uh, but by the same token, I have to ask, why would Jerry Krause, and maybe my, my, maybe my time frame is off here, why would Jerry Krause make an announcement that Phil wasn't coming back? And I didn't understand the timing of it. And furthermore, why would you want to break everything up that was doing so well? Well, that's, that's the story of the last dance, and, you know, that's the drama they got to play out. And I understand it, and it's not... You know, inaccurate. They're not making it up, but it, but it's kind of like a lot of those TV movies where they say based on a true story and based on actual events. And, and there were actual events, you know. But there's always depth to to what occurs. Uh, yeah, Jer- Jerry Krause um, was, and, and you know, I, I'm loath to pile on, you know, because he's being depicted as the villain of this thing, and right. you know, I, I don't want to add to that. Although Jerry brought it all on himself, he he was a very difficult he was a very difficult person to deal with on a regular basis, and you know Michael was probably mean, meaner than he needed to be. You know, we've seen some of that, but if you lived with Jerry all the time as they did, uh, he would get on your nerves. But um, and you've heard Michael now a couple of times in this documentary in different. You know, they've come back and forth, flipped back and forth in the years, um, saying, you know, he essentially was burned out. And he probably, uh, he was, not probably, he wasn't going to play beyond 97, 98. And he, I, I felt he was using that, you know, Krause, you know, I'm chasing you out thing uh, as another one of his motivational ploys to get through. Well, I'll show you, you know. You guys think Clyde Drexler was better? I'll show you. <laughs> Whatever it was, you know, Michael always had these things to motivate him. Jeff Van Gundy said, "I'm a con man." You know, some coach cut him. You know, didn't put him on the varsity in high school. Whatever it was, yeah, you know, Dan Marley. Was, yeah, that was you know that was all this cool you know stuff he did. But you know, if you look, if he saw what's going on. Michael saw clearly. I mean, Scotty. You know, Scotty was. Uh, you know, off the rails with the Bulls, and he was going to be unrestricted free agent. You know, he, he postponed that surgery, which Michael even criticized still in, in, in the first episode. Um, you know, 20 years later, he's still mad about it. Um, where Scotty postponed the surgery in June so he could have it in September so he could purposely miss the first half of the season. You know, Dennis with you know, already going to Vegas. That was the season before. You know, he sees Dennis. So he, you know, he realizes this thing's coming apart and, you know, fail for the same, you know, the same element. Um, he'd always said, you know, because of his background, you know, his family being ministers and his, you know, the way he dealt with a team, sort of like a, con- you know, a, a, a congregation, um, that, you know, a voice of a coach was like seven years and now he was into year nine. I think he mentioned that somewhere in a documentary uh, that he was, he was ready for his sabbatical, too, was worn out. That said, Michael obviously could play for another coach because he did play for another coach, played two years for Doug Collins. So, so this notion that, that he couldn't play for, you know, if not Phil Jackson, I can't play again. Well, that's not true. He could have if he wanted to. Who, first of all, who's telling Michael Jordan no? Whoever, I, I mean, everything through this whole Every episode so far is a demonstration of Michael Jordan does exactly what he wants to do. Who's going to tell him he can't do something? So if he wanted to come back and play, of course he could have come back and play. And Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, was always clear on that. You know, hey, Jerry, Jerry Krause could say what he wanted. You know, he wanted to trade Pippen, which he probably should have. It might have been better for the Bulls if he had in 97, the Boston, you know, at the end of the 97 season championship. But the owner, Reinsdorf, you know, he has the final say, and he overruled it. And he said, no, you know, this team still has a chance to win, and, you know, we're not trading Pippen. So that was that. And the the fact is, if Bill wanted to stay, Reinsdorf uh, was a great admirer of Bill. If Bill wanted to stay, he could have stayed. He could have have signed a long-term deal and and 
stayed around for rebuilding if he wanted to, but he didn't want to. He didn't, you know, he, he had had his run, and, and these guys, these guys better than anybody, not only realized it, but they, you know, but that that it was done. But they also realized that they were done, and they needed time off. And Michael's, you know, I mean, if anyone broke up the dynasty, it was Michael in '93, '94 when he quit. You know, after the after the first three titles, you know, that team, you know, because you still had a young Grant and a young Pippen, you know, that team could have won again. Not not of, but they could have. You know, Michael was pretty worn out. And, you know, the Knicks and everything, you, you know, you know, it was difficult, and they just barely got by him. So, you know, maybe they didn't, maybe they wouldn't have, but that that was the best chance. By 98-99, you know, Michael was going on 36. Scotty's in his 30s. Dennis is in, you know, it's an old, old team of guys who are really extended themselves for a long time. And I think Michael and Phil, being smarter than the others, uh, they, they understood it best, and they knew, hey, this is the time. And what a great way to motivate ourselves for one more season to pretend we're being forced out. Reinsdorf, if I'm not mistaken, is a Brooklyn guy. Didn't he go to Erasmus Hall High School? Uh, who is that you said? Reinsdorf. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's Jerry, loyal, devoted, uh, Brooklynite, um, turned on the Dodgers when they left uh, after, the ninth, after the 57 season. Still talks about that. Still angry with Walter O'Malley for that. Um, yeah, and I know he's been back to some, even some reunions at Erasmus. Grew up, you know, right off Flatbush Avenue near Church Avenue. So, uh, yeah, has a great affinity for his youth in Brooklyn well, uh, uh, to this day. I know somebody else who went to Erasmus. You're talking to him. Okay, yeah. Well, <laughs> Al Davis, Bob Streisand. Uh, we've had, uh, actually, I got there after Streisand, but... Uh, I've had many conversations with the late Al Davis. When I first met Al on the field before a game, he said, where are you from? I said, Brooklyn. He goes, I'm from Brooklyn. I said, I know that. Uh, where'd you go to high school? I told him Erasmus Hall. He hugged me. He says, now I love you. And, you know, and I remember once, and this is a true story, the Erasmus football program was what they were going to have to go broke. They couldn't afford to keep the team on the field. Al Davis sent the principal a signed check. He said, put in whatever amount you need and keep the team alive. Yeah, no, they've had, uh, they've had uh, like I said, it'd be hard for you to get on the Erasmus Hall of Fame there with all the graduates they've had. Oh, no, I'm the only, I'm the only guy who went to Erasmus I never heard of. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. No, no, I, I was there. I was there right. I grew up in Brooklyn and went to one of those high schools. Yeah, you went, to Ma- you went to Madison. Madison, and we had, we had triple session. School started not for you know seven in the morning and went till five in the evening because we had so many. It was fifty, you know, fifty kids in a class, and my graduating class was fifteen hundred. Um, so <laughs> we didn't put it, put it this way. We weren't particularly educated that well. Yeah, no. You, you went to Madison. Madison used to beat our brains out on the football field, and we used to get you on the basketball court because we had a guy named Billy Cunningham, so he wasn't too bad. That's right. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I appreciate the insight. Thank you. Yeah, always great to talk to you. He is Sam Smith. Jordan Rules. When you write a book, and I'm in the process of writing one now about what I've been through uh, in my career in broadcasting, it's not finished yet, but I've made notes over, I don't know, 25 years about incidents, things that have happened, places that I have been, where my career has taken me, and so on. When I first started with the NBA in the 88-89 season with the then New Jersey Nets, uh, Michael Jordan was already huge. He was huge. And so when the Chicago Bulls came into the Meadowlands to play the Nets, I'll bet I spent the first three minutes of the game staring at Michael Jordan because here I am at courtside of an NBA game getting ready to broadcast a game and Michael Jordan's playing in the game and I felt the same way about Larry Bird I felt the same way about Magic Johnson and some of the greats that have played the game but the one thing I've gotten out of this documentary The Last Dance was Michael Jordan 
when you are an iconic figure like Michael Jordan, uh, you're going to come under scrutiny. You're going to be under the magnifying glass every single day of your life. And the first question I asked Michael when I interviewed him once in the Chicago Bulls locker room, do you realize the enormity of your celebrity? And he said no, because his mother and father, actually Michael was born in Brooklyn, but he grew up in, um, I, think, I think it was Wilmington, North Carolina. He said his mother and father brought him up to have respect. Respect for people, respect for elders, respect. He obviously had a lot of respect for his mother and father. So he was brought up in a, in a, uh, in a household where discipline was part of the upbringing. So when you saw Michael Jordan at North Carolina hit the winning baseline jump shot to give North Carolina the NCAA championship, that was really the first time that outside the confines of the state of North Carolina or the confines of the ACC that you even knew who Michael Jordan was. And so now it is years later, and Michael Jordan is still the figure of a person that you want, you can't get enough information about this guy. I mean, the guy was, uh, not was, still is, he's a very polarizing figure. He's a guy who has done an awful lot in his life. He's been everywhere. He's done everything. He's worth a fortune. But keep this in mind. When uh, David Falk, his first agent, went to basically make a presentation to his mother and father in their home in North Carolina, David Falk was, he, I mean, he was an expert. And he hitched his wagon to a superstar in the making. And then he became the superstar. And the Nike shoe deal, Nike was a small company. They needed something to hit the marketplace with a big bang, and they found it in Michael Jordan. A little bit of luck, sure. But if you do your homework, chances are you're going to wind up with the right answer. I came away with the last dance remembering a number of things. First time I interviewed Jordan, first time I saw him on the basketball court, when I was doing the Celtic games, uh, the opening game of the season was Chicago Bulls came to Boston. And when Rick Pitino was in his first game as head coach of the Celtics, uh, they beat Jordan and the Bulls. And it was enormous headlines the next day in the, in the Boston papers. I, I look at it, look, Michael Jordan can fill a building by himself. When the Nets, in my early days with the Nets, they couldn't draw flies. But when the Chicago Bulls came to town, 20,300 sold out building. Which made me wonder why a guy like Jordan wouldn't have some kind of a stipulation in his contract that I get, I don't know, $10 a ticket for every ticket that's attributed to my appearance. He might have made more money than he made with his contract. But who was Michael Jordan? Who is Michael Jordan? Well, he's not the same guy you remember from the basketball court. But when you think of Michael Jordan, you think of greatness. When you think of Magic Johnson, you think of greatness. When you think of LeBron James, you think in greatness. And the thing that's interesting to me about Michael versus LeBron as an example is that LeBron is very outspoken politically. LeBron is very outspoken about things that bother him. But that's his choice. Michael Jordan didn't do that. That was his choice. So if you want to criticize Jordan for his not taking a stance, when you look at an athlete with the enormity of Muhammad Ali who did take a stance, who's right and who's wrong? Both are right for the way they felt. Neither's wrong because that's the way they felt. Look, I went into the military during the Vietnam War. It was an unpopular war. It was an illegal war. People were dying for no good reason. And more people now have died with the pandemic than died in the Vietnam War, which is a scary proposition. But yet during the time that Ali 
uh, refused to go into the army, refused to be inducted, I was a young guy and I objected to his denial. But as I grew older and became more educated and finally understood where he was coming from, I understood. I wasn't outspoken about his denial. I had my feelings and told it to the people closest to me. And so when I went into the military, went into the Air Force, I was lucky. Gave me a career. So I can't kill the Air Force. It helped me out. Helped me become somebody. I had a path that I didn't have before I went into the Air Force. Michael Jordan is, to me, as visible a person in the 20th century and into the 21st century as there is. I can't think of a baseball player playing today or 10 years ago or 20 years ago that had the same impact of Michael Jordan. I cannot think of a football player that had the same total impact of Michael Jordan. Yeah, we all have favorite athletes that we, that we admired. I mean, I thought Barry Sanders was as great a running back as the NFL has ever seen. But he wasn't Michael Jordan. He didn't have the same beliefs. Gale Sayers, great running back in his time. Spent five years in the NFL. What a shame. But the injuries just took the best of him. All I'm saying is that Michael Jordan is out there in full face to be admired, to be worshipped, to be adored, and to be criticized. Because that's where he has put himself. Didn't intentionally want to be the focal, but his game made him what he was on the court. He didn't want to be something off the court. He didn't want to be a role model. He says it in the documentary. I don't want to be a role model. I didn't want to be a role model. Charles Barkley has said the same thing, but it, it didn't have the same impact as when Michael said it. I look at LeBron James now, and, and I know that people uh, have a distaste for LeBron James because of the decision when he left Cleveland to go to Miami and play with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. There are a lot of people that didn't approve of that. And so it's what he wanted to do. But look what he's done since. Best of my knowledge, I don't know the exact figure, but I want to say it was $2 million that he put up to build a school for kids. How many times has he put his hand in his pocket for kids? The answer is frequently. So when I have these running arguments with people that I know from New York, they just ticked off that he didn't go play for the Knicks. So what? A lot of people didn't go play for the Knicks. So you're going to lay their ineptitude that they've demonstrated for I don't know how many, six years. They haven't been to the playoffs. And we're supposed to blame LeBron James because the Knicks haven't made the playoffs in six years? No, it doesn't work that way. And those that... And I'm going to mention Stephen A. Smith, okay? Stephen A. Smith has been very critical of LeBron James. Why? Because Stephen A. Smith's a Knicks fan. But there's a part of him that's a little bit of a cartoon character. He has developed a persona. And it worked, it's worked for him because he's putting a lot of money in his pocket now. He's quoted an awful lot for being all about me. Not me, but him. Good for him. I don't care. Then keep me awake at night. But I remember what Bob Costas has told me over and over and over again. Loud is not necessarily better. It's just loud. Thank you for being a part of the program. Thanks to Sam Smith. Stay safe. Have a good day, everybody. And to close out the show, a friendly reminder that Howard David Inside Sports is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. Go to BetOnline.ag, use the promo code MYPOD100, and they'll match your first deposit up to $1,000. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of your week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.